be with you all tonight. It is good to have these events like this back going this year. After a year like we had previously, where a lot of these were canceled, a lot of these opportunities were not available to us, it's great to have this opportunity uh, to be here with you to preach and teach, but also to have the chance yesterday to listen to those who brought their messages that were beneficial to all of us as well. And I look forward to tomorrow's sessions as well. I will give you a bit of advice. If you're in Dripping Springs, Texas for Sunday morning worship, as I was, uh, and then you go and hang out with the preacher at Dripping Springs because you have a nine-year-old daughter and so does he, and then you leave his house at around 3.30 and you put in your GPS, University Church of Christ, and you don't put in there a particular city and you just simply hit the GPS button, you could find yourself ending up in Austin, Texas, looking at a church building that did not look very familiar to you when you pulled up, and then find yourself possibly driving a little bit too fast on I-35 to get to San Marcos, Texas, in time to speak at 5 o'clock, which that may or may not have been my opportunity uh, this afternoon on the way here. My daughter asked, why are we leaving so early from her friend's house? And I told her when we got here, this is why we leave early, in case we drive an hour out of our way uh, to get to our location there. It's good to be with you. I am thankful for the elders here and for Wayne for inviting me to be a part of this program and have this opportunity to teach. You know, there are certain dates that you simply say the day, and you know that particular date changed both the present and the future after something like that happened. For most folks my age and older, a date like September 11th, we know immediately how much that changed both the present when it took place and how much it changed the future. Most of us can say things like, where were you when that took place? And you can mention like you were, like in my case, in high school in a football meeting, watching film for the team you're about to play the following week when someone walks in and says, change this channel or change the tape off and go to the local school's news channel because there's been a plane hit the World Trade Center. And you might have spent your time, if you're in school, watching those activities, or maybe you're in the workplace where we stopped and we realized this was more than just an accident. Something terrible had happened, and all of a sudden, the present changed. Flights were shut down. The nation was shut down. We all wondered what would be next. We had a, a president who was there at the time reading to children who had to then quickly finish that up and figure out what does it look like to be a nation that might have airplanes in the air that could be used at any moment in time to do ill will. And we found out very quickly how that changed the present, but also how it changed the future. The November of that year in 2001, I had an airplane flight, so I had to go to the airport for the first time after September 11th. And for the first time in my life as a teenager, and I'd flown in and out of airports uh, several times at that moment in time, I saw armed guards at U.S. airports. I had seen it in other countries I'd flown to. I'd seen those take place. But to see our uniformed soldiers with their military weapons out and about and to randomly have dogs and individuals being stopped and your bags searched, you begin to realize the future changed. In fact, when I flew out here two days ago from Nashville, I had to do things like take my shoes off and make sure my belt was off and my little girl had to go through a metal detector and my wife could not walk us back there uh, to our particular terminal because all of those rules had changed because that moment in time we had the present change but also the future. And in fact, based off that moment in time, we have had wars and conflicts throughout different areas all because one series of events took place. All this generation is starting to die off as we get older as a country, but for a generation, a previous uh, one or two of us, you might have those who remember days like De December 7th, 1941. 
in which you can remember now the radio recording the day I live on in infamy where those individuals realized their present had changed and our future changed as well. In that particular moment, all of a sudden, the present changed. We were going to be involved in conflict whether we wanted to be or not. We were going to send troops and we were going to send lives overseas in the Pacific realm and the European realm. We were going to have individuals die on the battlefields as we entered into World War II. And the future changed as well. We had the loss of many lives of individuals came back and, and not coming back at all. And some of them coming back uh, with all new realities they dealt with. But also the change of the whole global landscape. World War II led to things like the Cold War, which led to different conflicts we had in Korea and Vietnam and led to all sorts of change in the Middle East. And now we're still paying different prices for those particular changes with conflicts we see there. All because one day changed both the present and the future. In your own life, you have days like that that change your present and your future. On October the 15th, 2005, I stood before a group of individuals, and my wife, not my wife yet, my bride at that point, walked down the aisle, and I said, I do, and thankfully she said, I do, and we became a family. And at that moment in time, my present changed. I was a married man, and because of that, my future changed. Three children later, a couple of moves later, we set up a home in Nashville, Tennessee. After we got married in Visalia, California, we've got three kids running around. And those moments in time, that particular moment, changed my present and my future. That announcement that I now present you as man and wife made a change in my life. Each birth of my child has brought changes in my life. Each one being born brings that present change and that future change as well. On July 26, 2016, my son Emmett was born, and that brought changes in my life. Emmett was born on July 26th. On July 27th, Emmett had his first of several different hospital visits and surgeries to follow up. On July the, 20th, on July the 30th, we were sitting in a room waiting for him to finish up a surgery when a surgeon comes out and says, we believe your son has a condition called cystic fibrosis, and then walked out of the room. We were in a NICU department post-operation for 30 days and finally the genetic test came in and said, yes, we can confirm this particular thing had happened. Within the next sort of three or four months, we were in and out of consultations and surgeries and other things for our son to deal with this new reality. It changed our present. What we thought would be bringing home our boy three days after his delivery and driving him back to our house and setting things up that way became about a four-month hospital stay in which my wife and I sort of crouched each other the doorway as we took shifts back and forth to see Emmett and those at church helped take care of our children during that time. But it also changed our future. As we learned more about cystic fibrosis, we were able to learn that Emmett's care needs would be greater than what we were used to. And things like medical insurance that were a big deal became a bigger deal in my family. And all of a sudden I decided, along with my elders at Woodson Chapel, that it was probably best for me to continue to preach at Woodson Chapel, but also look for work that could provide insurance for my son. And so all of a sudden, my life course changed, and I began to work in healthcare tech, I, a field I knew very little about when I first joined in, but that was the place where I could use some skills that I had in a way that would be beneficial to my family. And all of a sudden, that past change, that, that present reality was changed, but also the future reality was changed. See, good announcements and bad announcements can change our present and our future. 
in October of 2019, a day you probably would not remember, but it's a big day in our family. My wife was speaking in front of the Cystic, Found, uh, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation Annual Conference. She was speaking as a parent to the clinicians who are working on the different medications and treatments with regards to Emmett's health and other individuals with cystic fibrosis. When after she spoke, they got up and announced that the FDA had approved a drug called Trikafta. Now, you don't know what Trikafta is unless you have a child that has cystic fibrosis or know somebody like that. But in our house, that was a huge deal. Trikafta was being proven amongst several individuals that it was reversing some of the complications of CF. It was keeping lung function where it's supposed to, and in some cases improving it. It was improving that digestive health and weight gain in those who took it. And all of a sudden, we had this new drug that was being approved for individuals to fight against this particular problem they had. Now, it's not a cure, but in our house, all of a sudden, the present reality changed. We talked to his doctor about what does this mean for Emmett, and not yet, he's not yet eligible. Eventually, they think his age, the FDA dropping, will probably meet in about two years, the age of six, to be able to take this particular medication. And cystic fibrosis, which affects the lungs and the digestive tract, is usually treated by dealing with symptoms. You have this symptom, so do this treatment. You have this symptom, so do this treatment. And you do these daily treatments each and every day, about an hour and a half Emmett goes through these to make him function like a normal little boy would who didn't have cystic fibrosis. This is the first drug that was dealing with the underlying cause of CF. All of a sudden we had a drug that didn't just simply say yes you have a, a symptom let's treat that but let's see if we can deal with the genetic issue that might be causing this in a greater way and maybe be able to eliminate some of those treatments our present changed. All of a sudden, we knew in a couple of years, Emmett's time in which he was doing treatments might shrink from two hours to about an hour. That all of a sudden, some of the treatments he's doing would be obsolete because this new drug was supposed to work that way. Our present reality changed, but our future changed. You know, if you have a child that has a particular condition where the first thing you Google, it talks about life expectancy. You have worries as a parent. Very early on, you begin to worry about every cough they have, every symptom they have, because a common cold to him is more than a common cold. It could result in something far more catastrophic. And so you begin to think, and especially those first few years, you begin to go to dark places about what's going to happen if he gets sick. You begin to think things like, will I get to see my son you know, early on take a first step? Will he survive those early years where they really worry about, can he put on enough weight just to, just to thrive in some way? And you begin to ask questions about, will I get to see Emmett have his first day of kindergarten? Will I get to see Emmett play his first sporting event? Will I get to see Emmett preach his first sermon? Will I get to see Emmett, you know, get to have that experience of, of having his bride walk down the aisle? And you worry about those things. As a parent, you worry even more so about those particular moments. And there, when that particular announcement was made, my wife came home and we sat back and think, there's more hope today than there was yesterday. There's more hope for a future for my son that I won't be attending his funeral. Hopefully, he'll be attending mine because of the fact that we had this announcement that this new drug has arrived and it changed the present and the future. We talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are talking about an announcement that does just that. In fact, a step further than that, we are talking about an announcement that changes both past, present, and future. 
When you think about the gospel, we are speaking of a very simple truth that God became king and that Jesus of Nazareth is more than just a good man, more than just a prophet. He is Lord and Christ. When Peter preaches what we know as the first gospel sermon, along with the other apostles by his side, he goes through the story of Jesus as it's fulfilled, or as it's prophesied, as it's fulfilled, the life, the death, the resurrection. And then he says, what does all of this mean? What does it mean that you have this account of a man who lived, who died, who was buried and was raised up? What does it mean? And Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified, he is now declared Lord and Christ. That's the gospel in essence that Jesus of Nazareth is truly the Lord and Christ. In Romans chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, there Paul says, when writing to the Romans Christians about the gospel, which he was an ambassador and given that particular uh, obligation to preach it, he said it's about Jesus, about the Son, who's the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, the Lord and Christ that we've all been waiting for about the gospel message, we're talking about the fact that God did not give up on humanity. Humanity who, they, who for a large degree gave up and rebelled against God, who chose not the path of, of righteousness and fellowship with God, but chose to be rebels who rebelled against God, but yet God said, I'm not going to give up on you. In fact, I'm going to send my son. And my son is going to show you what true humanity looks like. And my son is going to be declared by his life, by his death, and by that resurrection to be exactly who he claims to be, Lord and Christ. That's the gospel, the good news, the announcement that was preached from city to city and town to town. Wherever you saw that in the book of Acts, they were declaring this Jesus whom was crucified or whom you crucified, he is now Lord in Christ. And they made that declaration because it meant things had changed. Just like we might remember a day in history or a moment in time in your personal history, or a moment in time in, in the history like my son's particular moment, all of a sudden something happens and everything changes. When it comes to Jesus, it begins with this. The gospel changes our past because God redeems us. You know, there are very few events that actually change the past. They might in some way give us more light into the past where something is revealed and we can say, yes, that might happen. Maybe you think of things like a clemency or a pardon that all of a sudden changes somebody's record in some way and maybe that changes their past. But nothing like what we read about in the Bible, what God does through Jesus in changing our past reality. If you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 2. And in that chapter, Paul will speak of what we formerly were or what we once were throughout that section. In fact, in verse 2, in verse 3, and down in verse 12, each of those occasions he says, you formerly were or you once were and describe for us what our past looked like. In verse 2 he says, you once were dead in your trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2 verse 2, Paul there is making it very clear, this was your reality, this was your past. Because of the sins you had committed, you found yourself spiritually dead. Now, if you know sort of Paul's theology of spiritual death, you know the ramifications of separation of God and the wages of sin is death and, the, and, and the, 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 the eternal consequences of those things. Paul says, that's what you formerly were. That was your past. Or in verse 3 where Paul says, you formerly gave yourself up to those desires and those lusts and found yourself to be children of wrath. Because the choices that you made and the, fat, the place that you followed, the lust that you participated in, you formerly were there those destined 
to face God's wrath, to face his punishment. We talk about our past before Jesus. We see a past that is overwhelmingly bleak, where sin takes its full, its full account in our lives. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves dead spiritually. We find ourselves waiting for the wrath of God. And the very nature of our existence, because of the choices we make, have us waiting for that day to come. We go down to verse 12. And those verses that to me are some of the most uh, smacked you in the face verses and sections of Scripture about our past reality, where he says, you were folks who once formerly were or once were individuals who had no hope, no God, and were afar off from the covenant God made with Israel. We think about our past for just a moment, how the gospel changes that. Paul paints that bleak picture of what life was like before the gospel came along, before the announcement that that Jesus whom you crucified is now Lord in Christ. Our reality was pretty terrible. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were simply waiting to have God's wrath revealed against us and living a life in which God was not on our side and we had no hope, wanting something different. You ever been in a moment in time where you get a diagnosis or something like that happens where you're left with zero hope, where you're left with, with nothing to hold on to? Maybe for just a brief moment, you can picture what it was like before the gospel came along and the announcement of God doing something on our behalf was heralded throughout the world. Jesus changed our past. You once were becomes that key idea throughout Ephesians 2. But then we have those verses where it says, but God, being rich in mercy, stepped in on our behalf. And those of us who once were dead and once were destined for wrath and once were a group of folks with no hope and with no God in this world become those who are now saved by God's grace, become those who now become the created his workmanship to do good works, become a part of the heirs and promises that God gives his people. And that's because of the gospel. Because of the gospel, our past has been changed. We have been redeemed, not to that old feudal way of life, but to now become the workmanship of God, doing the things that God wants us to do. When you think about the gospel, the announcement that Jesus is Lord, we are saying, first of all, our past was changed in that moment in time. When we accepted that particular message, it changed our past. But it also changed our present by giving us a new way to live. You know, oftentimes when we speak about the gospel message, we get really quickly to its benefits. We talk about the death of Jesus brings salvation. You can have forgiveness of sins. Then we skip a lot of this sort of middle ground, and one day you get to go to heaven. So we have kind of these two big pillars that we hang the gospel on. On the one hand, when you obey the gospel, you get forgiveness and redemption and salvation, all that Ephesians chapter 1 stuff. And on the other hand, you get to one day go off in heaven. And we sometimes forget about that middle section there. But when you read Paul's letters, Paul spends a lot of time on that middle section there, trying to help churches and Christians live out the reality of the fact that Jesus is raised. What does that mean for my day-to-day -day life? And in Colossians chapter 3, another letter of Paul, we have a section there where Paul's going to talk about this new reality. In chapter 2 of Colossians, Paul says, you participated in the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. In a section of scripture where Paul highlights what happened to us 
us at baptism, the circumcision not made with hands, the cutting away of sin, the removal and nailing to the cross of our particular statues written against us, the unarming of the spiritual forces against us, and the fact that God made us alive, he lays it out and says, this is what God did for you in that moment in time. God provided these things for you. He made you alive and redeemed you and took your sins away. That's what God did. And in chapter 2, he speaks of the preeminence of Jesus and how he is above all things and above everything in this world. He then jumps to chapter 3 and begins by saying, Since you've been raised with Christ, since you have participated in the death of Jesus and his burial and resurrection, you no longer set your minds on things of this earth, but rather on things above. In fact, there in verse 3 and 4, Paul gives this sort of mystical statement where he says, our life at our baptism gets hidden with Jesus, and Jesus is currently sitting at the right hand of God. Therefore, our life is at the right hand of God. And if our life is there, our mind should be there. That's the things we should be focused on because that's where our life currently exists, right there beside God. I don't get how that works metaphorically or what it looks like in terms of the philosophical discussions, but I believe Paul when he says it. And Paul says, you set your things not on things of this earth, but on things above. All of a sudden, your mindset changes. The way you view things changes. The world around you changes because you have decided that you are now hidden with Christ and he's at God's right hand, and that's where your mind is. Your attitude and what you focus on is different from the world around you. Too often I see Christians who, by the way they live their lives, the priorities that they seek, the things that they do, they seem to be so little difference between them and maybe the conservative version of the world around them. It's where we just sort of live the life everybody else lives and set our minds on these earthly things and those sort of issues and not things of above. Paul says there in chapter 3 of Colossians to set your minds on things above, but he also says when you set your mind on things above, the way you live in this moment changes. You know, the old saying of that person so heavenly minded they have no earthly value is really terrible because what Paul says in chapter 3 is if we are heavenly minded, we will then display our true earthly value because we're going to learn to live in a new reality. And in chapter 3, the first part, beginning in verse 5 down through verse 11, he says, here are all the bad things you should put away. And in chapter 3, verse 12, he says, in their place, you should put on some new things. Now, the language there in the Greek is the same word oftentimes used for changing your clothes in some way. I'm not a person who's known for high fashion. If we're at Woodson Chapel where I preach on a regular basis, you would hear a very audible amen from a good portion of those who have seen me outside of a Sunday morning sort of attire, and they say, yes, like things would like, you know, you can't wear stripes and other patterns. Don't seem to bother me whatsoever. It does bother other people. It got so bad that a couple of weeks ago, I put on one of my favorite Atlanta Braves shirts. I was ready to go see my daughter's softball game. I get up, I go to walk over there, and Amanda says, are you wearing that to the game? And my first thought was, obviously I am. I'm walking out the door to go to the game. My second thought was, there's a reason why she's asking me this, because the answer is, no, I'm not wearing it to that game. And she said, look at your shirt. So I looked down, and she says, do you not notice where there used to be the word Atlanta? There's now just like a part of an A and an A on the other side, and everything else is faded out. 
And my response was, no, I noticed it was comfortable and I've had it for 10 years and I like it. She says, you're not wearing that shirt. In fact, it got so bad that on this trip, my nine-year-old said, before you zip the suitcase, I want to see what clothes you have in the bag. I thought my nine-year-old is worried about what I might be wearing on this trip when we go places because she understands that my fashion sense isn't the greatest. Now, we learn there's appropriate clothing for appropriate occasions. That you don't wear the same thing to a ball game that you might wear to other events in some moment in time. And we dress appropriately for what we're doing. When I'm in comfortable clothes, I have on athletic shorts and I have on a t-shirt. In fact, most of my day right now, since the other work that I do is not requiring any office time, I am in athletic shirts, a t-shirt, and I have a polo hanging in my office behind me for I have to get on a Zoom call and there's video so I can look like I'm dressed and ready to go for that particular presentation with whatever health executive I'm talking to that particular day. Otherwise, I am in comfortable clothes mostly all the time. But obviously... If I'm called to go do a funeral, I'm not going to wear the athletic shirts and a t-shirt. I'm going to put on something a little more appropriate for the occasion. Now, I don't know why in the history of humanity somebody thought tying something around your neck was appropriate, but that in some cases I even have to put a tie on, as little as possible if I can help it. But I do that even in some occasions as well, because we understand you need to be dressed appropriately. Well, Paul talks about this as well and says, if you are a person who's been raised with Christ and living this new reality, you put aside those old clothes. You take that old way of living life that was, that was describing the futile way, the way that led to no hope and no God, the way that had all those bad things of malice and envy and fighting, and go through that list there in chapter 5. You put those things, or chapter 3, you put those things away. In their place, you put on new clothing. Things like being truthful with your words, being forgiving to those around you, things like being pure in your relationships, being somebody who when it comes to your relationship with your spouse, you find yourself to be faithful, being some things that in our world seem to be further and further out of fashion should be in fashion for those who follow Jesus. Those are things we should be putting on to show the world here's a new and better way. See, the gospel changed your past. God declared you to no longer be what you once were. But now, he says, those things are no longer remembered. I've forgiven you, and you have a new past, and you have a new present. And that new present means you live a new way where you put on the appropriate clothing that goes along with having your mind there with Christ and your life hidden with Christ. When you come out of baptism, you come out with new clothes to put on because the gospel changes your past. It changes your present, but it also changes your future. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, one of my favorite sections of Scripture and even more so a few years back when the Emmett stuff first started because you begin to think about death and you begin to hopefully as a Christian think about resurrection. In fact, I remember one night in the NICU transfer, I think we had a, a elderly or a, a, one of the elders' wives were watching our girls and we both were able to the NICU at the same time with Emmett and we're holding him and as often was the case, we're, we're singing him songs, we're getting that few minutes he's out of the incubator and all the stuff there and we're crying and we drive back together because you know, one of the hardest parts about the NICU is we could not be there overnight. You know, kind of leave Emmett there. And we're driving back together. And she says, you know, everyone's going to die. 
you kind of, as a husband, you're, you're kind of, okay, where's this conversation going? And she says, we probably know what's, what's going to take Emmett. The fact that he has this condition will probably be the reason why he dies. We're all going to die. And then she says, but doesn't it make you long for a world where we don't die? Doesn't it make you long for heaven to know there's going to be a time where we're not going to have sickness? And of course, that moment in time, I'm, I'm crying and she's crying and I'm like the disciples, oh, oh me of little faith as my wife here is putting things into perspective in a way that I could never do it. And she's laying about the beauty of the resurrection. And I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I see Paul doing something similar. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul begins with the announcement. He says, this is what I passed on to you that was passed on to me. That Jesus died according to Scripture, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to Scripture, and that he was witnessed by 500, by the apostles, by James, and by me, Paul, in an undue time and season. And Paul makes that establishment that Jesus was raised from the dead, not so much because the Corinthians don't believe that, because they do believe that, but rather because they'd missed the implication that if Jesus was raised from the dead, you and I will be as well. In fact, the rest of chapter 15 is really Paul's argument about if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, here are the negative consequences, 12 through 19. All of these things are bad. Preaching is false. We are pitiable of all men. Then in verse 20 he says, if we do believe in the resurrection, which please, I hope in this room you do believe in that. If you believe Jesus is raised from the dead, he says, you should believe you will be as well. In fact, he uses the concept of first fruits. I grew up the first nine years of my life in West Tennessee. My granddad was a crop farmer for seven years. He retired for six months. He got bored and began to then have cattle. So I worked on farm stuff in and out of my early years there. Had my first wreck in a farm truck at the age of eight, uh, smiling and waving at the pretty girl in town as I hit the back end of my dad's tractor who was riding in front of me. And so I grew up around farms and harvest. If you have a first fruit, the implications are going to have a little bit more. In the Old Testament, you would take those first fruits, the initial harvest, you would offer them to God knowing full well there was a greater harvest to come. And Paul said Jesus was the first fruit. But if he's the first fruit, by implication, there are a lot more of us who will one day participate in God's resurrection harvest. And Paul's argument is going to be in that section there that if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, then you also believe that God will raise us as well. And if you believe that, you believe that you have hope for the future because God is going to conquer death. I've heard it said before, and I've had this same thought, and maybe said it before, while I'm looking at a family who's seeing someone suffer, and you, and you think in that moment how, man, death is helpful to them. And it might be from our perspective that death seems to come almost as a friend, take away pain and suffering. But if you read Paul, yes, because of our present reality, death might eliminate pain and suffering. But Paul makes it very clear, death is an enemy. That in God's good creation, the plan for there to be death was not part of God's plan. It is something that's an enemy that has to be conquered. In fact, there in verse 24 through verse 29 of chapter 15, Paul says that Jesus is waiting for that final enemy death to be conquered so that he can have the fullness of his kingdom and then pass that kingdom on to the Father when this day and time is over with. That he's waiting for death to give up its, its bodies. 
for death to give up its hold. I read in the book of Revelation about death giving up the bodies and thrown into the lake of fire to sort of eliminate death, the final enemy of God. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 wants us to see that we will conquer death. When I do a funeral, I want to make sure the family understands we're not talking about a final resting place in a graveyard. Because if we believe Jesus was raised from the dead, we also believe those who follow him will be raised as well. And we believe that death is not the final thing, but death is just the beginning of a new reality where God is going to raise us up. And I think sometimes if in two years Emmett gets that special drug that we hope is great, but maybe he's one of those that's not great for, and maybe he doesn't have an easing of some of his treatments and some of the difficulties he'll face, and he'll still have a life with treatments and difficulties and those things. But I can still dream of a day of the resurrected body where those things will no longer be a reality. Where I can read 1 Corinthians 15 when he talks about God giving up or raising from the dead. And then he describes the body being imperishable and incorruptible and that which was once perishable and once corruptible put on immortality and incorruptibility, preparing ourselves for the world to come because the present reality isn't the body we need. We need a body fashioned by the Spirit of God himself. And then, and then I can say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. When Paul mocks death, and he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? One of the most impactful moments in my time at Woodson Chapel came from a tragedy. We had a man in his 50s who worked for the Tennessee Department of Transportation. They were doing something on Interstate 40, and a truck driver who was on his phone swerved over into his lane, hit the truck. The truck piled into this man, and he was dead right then. He'd been worshiping with our church almost his entire life. He had daughters there, family there. The service was held at Woodson Chapel's building. We could not hold everybody in our auditorium that seats close to 700 because T-Dot had brought people out. I was sitting in the funeral coach beside the funeral director getting ready to do the graveside after the funeral. We take a right turn and lining the streets to the funeral was TDOT members standing there in orange, their hats over their heart. We get to the graveside. It's the largest graveside service I've seen between family and all of the Tennessee individuals who are involved in the Tennessee government there. And before the body goes to the ground... The family begins singing hymns of victory. There we were gathered with a man who was described as a man who was a genuine Christian by his co-workers. who had that smile and handshake every time I'd walk in. And there's the family singing victory hymns as we read 1 Corinthians 15. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? When we talk about the gospel, we talk about an announcement that changes everything. Not just merely the way certain dates change things. Yes, September 11th changed a lot, and December 7th, 1941 changed a lot, and me being married changed a lot. 
Emmett's birth and diagnosis changed a lot, but in scope and magnitude, nothing compares to what the announcement of what Jesus did for us is like. And when Peter says those words, the Jesus whom you crucified is now Lord in Christ, he is opening up a new invitation to all of us that your past can be changed, that your present can be changed, and that your future can be hope-filled. The good news is the only and greatest message in which when we trust in it and participate in it and enact it in the waters of baptism, we leave with a new reality, a past in which we're now forgiven of, a present in which we now live out this new reality, having the mind of Christ and putting on the new and appropriate clothes and a future no matter what life throws at us, no matter what diagnosis we have, no matter what death takes from us, is full of hope. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, our past, our present, and our future has been changed.